Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman, and with me today, filling in for Stephen Nelson, is Prashant Iyer. Prashant, how's it going? It's, uh, it's good to be back. I'm glad you invited me back here, Max. Well, you know, Stephen was busy today, what, with the uh, USA game on the World Juniors and whatnot, so I thought uh, we'd, we'd give you another shot here. I appreciate that. Thank you. How was your uh, How was your holiday? Uh, I really can't complain, you know, uh had to work the entire Christmas block of it, which, uh, you know, busy as, as it can be in the hospital. But then I had five days off, which first few days off in quite some time. So I, I, I can't say that it was bad at all. I'm glad to hear it. Well, I'm on the opposite end of things where I'm actually going to work for the first time in <laughs> several months and uh, back at training camp, which is now underway. So um that's a thing that's happening and and it's actually starting to to get a little bit into the normal rhythm of things day one was certainly a little bit weird but uh other than the fact that we're not going in the locker room at all and and we're talking to everybody uh over zooms uh it certainly feels like a training camp have you have you figured out because i saw sarah Sivian tweet about this have you figured out how to lower your hand after you have raised your hand on a zoom call so the way the Red Wings do it, uh, we don't use the hand raise tool in our press conferences. Uh, so the Red Wings ask us to go in the chat queue and just say question. So uh, that's a, I think it's pretty good because it's a nice order for, for everybody. So you know who's before you and who's after you. Um, and yeah, you don't have the whole hand raise, hand lower snafu. So uh, I think that's a pretty a pretty good choice by the Red Wings there. All right. Well, uh, certainly seems that way, you know, avoid a lot of, uh, I guess, technological mishaps that haven't been sorted out over the last few months, I guess. My number one bold prediction for the season, though, is that there is going to be at least one or two hot mic snafus in the press corps. I can already see it coming from a mile away. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, of mic related issues already that, that haven't been hot mic situations, just I don't think people who knew that the mics were on. Um, not that they said anything, but just, you could tell. And then I myself left my video feed running between pressers today while I was just pacing around the media room. Um, again, of no consequence now, but I'm betting that there will be one of some, uh, intrigue between now and May 8th. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and just place the bet that it is somebody who tells Dylan Larkin to shave his facial hair, <laughs> just like Trevor Lawrence, right? It's got to go that way. It could be, who knows? We'll see. We will see. Um, but yeah, so four practices in now. I, I think I don't think anything too earth shattering has happened yet, but there have been a few kind of little developments that I thought today's obviously a natural fit to talk about. We can get into some kind of, uh, you know, I, I did an article this morning about what success would look like for the Red Wings in, in 2021, and I certainly would love your take on that. I made sure not to consult you this time while writing it so I could do it <laughs> live on air and we'll get, we'll get your, your raw uncut uh, takes on that here. Uh, and then maybe we could talk a little bit about the World Juniors. And uh, I guess before we get into any of that, we can start with the news of the day that just became official. AHL is back for February 5. The Griffins are in. A few teams, including Milwaukee and Charlotte, are out. But the Griffins, despite uh, being independently owned from the Red Wings, are going to play this year, which I think is a pretty big deal. Yeah. I mean, having the AHL, obviously, if they have the feasibility of you know, running a safe season, which I think a lot of it was, uh, you know, kind of up in the air because they're a lot more dependent kind of on uh, ticket sales and, and, and things of that nature to, you know, drive revenue to sustain the league. And so, you know, with the news of 28 teams, I think participating, 
Uh, it's encouraging, you know, assuming the level of treatment and care that went into the NHL CBA and memorandum to bring them back. Uh, but, you know, from a Red Wing standpoint, assuming that everything is able to run without a hitch or at least at the same level that's run in the NHL, uh, having Grand Rapids is going to be an excellent thing for the players that don't necessarily make the taxi squad. Um, and you, you you need to find time for them. And these are guys who are not on loan. So you're you're talking about the guys like Giovanni Smith, who may or may not make this team. We'll talk about that and may or may not make the taxi squad. Uh, you know, guys like him are, are going to be really important to get consistent playing time. And whether that's in the AHL or at the NHL level, you know, sitting on the taxi squad may not be the best thing for him. And so having Grand Rapids there is going to be a huge key, especially, you know, again, if, if, if Michael Rasmussen, uh, you know, again, ends up not being able to stick with the team, uh, you know, having that luxury of being able to go to to the AHL will be huge, I think. Yeah, I think it's big. And I I think, you know, for, for as much as the Red Wings needed to find places for guys um, in Europe, it was also going to be an issue if they called everyone back from Europe to then play. Um, and with this, we're talking about guys like Rasmussen and like Lindstrom to play uh, or to, to participate in training camp. And then after that, it was just this. And then you got to wait again and do nothing. It was almost going to, you know, kind of not not nullify, but but regress some of the advantage that was was gained by that and so now february 5 you know that's really only three weeks after um the red wings training camp is set to wrap up that's a pretty nice you know lead in right to basically an ahl training camp so i think it's a pretty significant thing um and the fact that the griffins are playing you know i'm not gonna say it was necessarily uh you know preordained that it would have happened like it I, I think all of the independently owned teams there there would have been at least some um reason for anxiety right yeah i mean when you and i talked about this you know when the pandemic was kind of up and roaring in wave one kind of way back in the summer i think we kind of expressed that the biggest disadvantage to a lot of these teams would be finding places for all of these guys to be able to play uh you know obviously detroit uh, was very fortunate with being able to have some guys loaned out to Sweden, Austria, you know, Czech Republic, Finland, to be able to get a lot of their key guys continuing to play. And then now having the AHL, um, you know, run their season again, that's going to be, uh, you know, beneficial for the Red Wings to continue to have a lot places for their young guys to play and not necessarily stuck in this limbo of, you know, either being loaned out versus, uh, sitting on the taxi squad. So I, I think this is kind of a nice luxury for the Red Wings this season. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get right into to camp then. And, and we'll start with, uh, I mean, first of all, how much of it have you been able to follow uh, from from where you've been? So, you know, I've obviously stayed up to date on all of your articles and, and, and your tweets here to make sure that I'm on top of, uh, you know, the, the Red Wings training camp as much as possible. So I've gotten to see some good line combinations, That's you know, good some stuff. good things tried out. Uh, you, you know, the basics of what we get in a training camp. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then let's start with the line combinations because the the two that stand out to me, obviously you, they're they're keeping uh, Larkin, Mantha, Bertuzzi together, but it's those middle six lines. It's uh, Fabry, Zadina, Ryan, and Nemesnikov, Gagne, Filpola. Actually, Nemesnikov, Filpola, Gagne, um, since Filpola has been, been playing the center there. Um, to me, those seem like lines with kind of clear – MOs, right? You got your one kind of possession line, maybe a little more uh, two-way, and that, that's the line with the three centers, Domestikov, Gagne, and Filpola. And then you've got a line that, that could score a bunch of goals as just as long as it doesn't get hemmed into its own zone too much. And, and that's with uh, Zadina, Fabry, and Ryan, Robbie Fabry transitioning back to center, which I don't think he's played full-time in the NHL for more than just a couple of games. So that, to me, is a huge storyline to watch. But Let's jump in there. What do you think of those kind of middle six line combos here? How how important are these two lines going to be for the Red Wings? And, and how confident are you that this is what they look like, not just for night one, but a week into the season two? Yeah, I think if you're talking about the forward lines here, I think the signature or really you will know in, in hindsight how this Red Wings team performed based on how well that second line stays together. Uh, I think the number one question for me is, can that second line defend? Because you uh, you look at Jeff Blaschel, you look at his tenure with the Red Wings, he's a guy who's very much about situational hockey. You know, late in games with leads, Luke Glendening moves his way up the lineup because that's a guy he trusts to defend. That's a guy who's going to get more ice time in those games. 
So, you know, if you are seeing this second line staying together, continuing to play, uh, play big minutes and lasting throughout the duration of the season, you will know that that line was able to defend and hold their own in addition to providing that offensive, uh, you know, jump. I think my biggest concern is that they don't defend and you start to see a mixing and matching of those second and third lines, which I fully expect to happen at some point. You know, you may see Philpola slide up because, you know, Blash will trust him maybe a little bit more defensively, or you may see, you know, Nemesnikov slide up in that uh, same regard, or even Gagne in certain situations. Um, obviously, handedness may come into this uh, as well. So, you know, looking at all of those pieces, you, you may see some situational breaking up of that line. But by and large, if that second line is able to defend well enough to stay together and earn Blashill's trust, this Red Wings team has a chance to outperform what a lot of people haven't pegged. It will certainly be interesting. And, and those are the the players that I'm watching the closest I find in, in camp. I've actually thought Sam Gagne and Nemesnikov both have been, and I put this in my day one article, were among, have been among, were, were among the day one standouts and have remained that way. I thought Gagne uh, made a couple of really nice plays on day three that I, I tweeted about. Um, and Nemesnikov continues to catch my eye. I, you know, part of it is I think it's just when you find a center who, who moves well and kind of has multiple dimensions to his game, they're just going to show up a lot and they're going to catch your eye a lot. But I think that I think Jeff Blaschel in, in talking about the style of play that those three Ganya Nemesnikov and Filipula can, can complement each other with. I do think he's onto something there. Now there is a part of me that wonders at one point, at what point or at, at will at one point, one of them need to move to, to that uh, Zadina Ryan line just to get that dimension there and maybe add a little bit of defense there. Um, but like you said, if, if the kind of scoring second line is able to stay together, I think this third line could be kind of fun to watch. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree there. And 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 that's really going to be the key and the crux for the Red Wings is can you get secondary scoring you know, beyond that top line, which they're going to look early on at least to this second line to provide. And then, you know, from there is are, are any of the lines capable of holding their own or keeping their head at least, you know, at the level of the water um, from a defensive standpoint? Because again, you know, when we looked at the line combinations for the Red Wings last year, it was, well, Bertuzzi, Lark, and Mantha are able to carry 55% of the shots when they're on the ice and, you know, are able to at least tilt the scoring battle in their favor, but everybody else was getting caved in. And so, you know, it's, it's can you get, can you find some, you know, version of those two lines that does well enough to at least hold their own? Um, you know, you don't even have to win the scoring battle in that sense. You just have to be able to hold your own. Uh, because if you can get through your top three lines where you're net neutral on lines two and three and you're a net positive on line one, that's the signs of a team that's getting close uh, to, to playoff contention in that sense, which is... If you're looking for Detroit to make that big step forward and maybe optimistically be somewhere around 20th in the league, uh, meaning not too far off of a playoff spot, I think that's what you're going to need to see from those lines. Yep. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And then in the fourth forward line, as, as we talk about him here, uh, Glenn Denning, Helm, and Adam Ernie. Helm has been out from practice. Unfit to practice is the technical term that, that NHL coaches are supposed to use when guys are out right now, which is maddeningly vague because now we don't know, is this injury? Is this illness? Um, it is almost certainly one of those two things. So I saw a lot of people making jokes on Twitter yesterday about the, the choice of the word fitness there. I can recognize that it is a confusing <laughs> sentiment and Certainly, I promise I wish that I had more specifics to give you, but I think that's all they're going to give us, at least for 
the the near term here as they get things off the ground. So be prepared for uh, more unfit to practice uh, things coming out of practice. And and in Helm's place has been Matthias Brome. I think that's interesting. Um, and and then uh, the defense pairs I think are a much more fluid uh, kind of work in progress. You've seen kind of different combinations. To my eye, when I look at how things have been going, I actually think the defense pairs could shake out De Kaiser Heronic, Merrill Nemeth, Stahl Stetcher. But there's also, you know, it, could it be Stahl Nemeth, Merrill Stetcher? Uh, I think this is going to be something that changes maybe a couple times and in, in a couple different ways through the preseason and, and even into the season. Jeff Blashell's talked extensively about wanting to ease Danny De Kaiser back in at first and not ask him to play a huge compliment. I think it sounds like they kind of want to roll pairs there early on in the year. Um, so we'll see how that shakes out, but at the fringes, it looks like, you know, they, they, they took the ice in a group of 18 and it, it's hard to take that any other way on day one, when every single player you expect to, to make the roster is out there. And then there's two or three more guys who certainly it would make sense if the coaching staff sees them as, you know, likely to make the roster to think those are the favorites. And those are the players that we just listed off. If you go down one group, then you start to get into some more interesting questions. I believe when I've watched, you know, Franz Nielsen not in that 18 was one of the notable things from the first four days of practice. When I've watched the practices from his group, it seems like Evgeny Svechnikov has been on his line. I wonder if Evgeny Svechnikov is kind of pushing for that um, roster fringe and or taxi squad territory. Alex Biega has been a, a, today, I thought was playing like a guy with his hair on fire. Um, and he's been paired, I think, with Dennis Chalowski a couple times when I've seen him. So I wonder if Chalowski's in that same conversation to to work that bubble. Um, you know, you, you look at the way that they've rolled out Rasmussen. Rasmussen, when I've seen him, has been on a line with Tara Hirose and Giovanni Smith. Is that your number one line with the Griffins? Certainly sounds like it to me um, based on those names, but I can, I can assure you, Michael Rasmussen and, and really all three of those guys are going to do whatever they can to make a statement and try to get onto the roster here. So um, if I was handicapping it right now, I think I'd have Svechnikov, uh, Nielsen, Biega, Chalowski as kind of a, a roster competition there. And if you figure two forwards, one D, you know, there, there's some pretty good fodder there. But we'll see how things evolve. First scrimmage is tomorrow. I know I just threw a mountain of information at you. Anything uh, stand out that merits further discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a handful of things that stand out there. I think the first thing to me is the guys that are at least as of now appearing to be maybe your taxi squad guys. Um, yeah. And and the interesting thing for me with that is Franz Nielsen. I think at least uh, on the surface appearing to be a guy that's not a part of that core. Um, you know, eighteen players. Uh, you know, with the way they're going to calculate the the salary cap this year over that crunch period of time. I mean, if you wave Franz Nielsen and he's on the on the uh, um, taxi squad, I mean, that may be an opportunity to save, you know, almost a million bucks over the course of the season uh, in cap space with the way that they're going to be calculating that. So, you know, that's a potential uh, a benefit, I guess, if he's going to be there. Um, obviously, I think, you know, watching him over the last year or two, it's, it's, it's clear his play has declined. I think even on a merit-based strategy, um, he's probably an odd man out and a guy who can come in situationally. Uh, but makes sense that if, you know, he's the guy that spends the most time on the uh, taxi squad, he's got kind of the highest cap hit uh, right now. And so that's potentially some savings that you could earn there. And then, you know, Svechnikov is going to be an interesting one because he also has to clear waivers um, and I believe, uh, Max, you can correct me if I'm wrong, they have to actually clear waivers to go to the taxi squad initially, right? So I believe that's right. So he would have to, you know, again, if he's not making the team outright, he would have to clear to go down to that taxi squad. Again, you know, we can talk about whether or not anyone's actually going to claim him. I suspect maybe a team like Ottawa would take a flyer on him. Uh, but, you know, it, it's hard to say. And then again, you know, Dennis Cholowski being an odd man out. Uh, right now, you know, he's not at waivers uh, yet in the sense that he doesn't have to, you know, go through waivers right now. But, he, you know, he's got 70 some games left before he does have to. But again, you know, for him to have a season where he doesn't start with the team where after he has started within the last two years, you know, you got to start to wonder uh, about his development curve to a certain extent. So I think there's definitely some interesting components in all of that. Yeah, so those are the things that I think will become more and more clear as this plays out. So will some of the kind of special teams notes that are 
coming into into the picture here. Dana DeKaiser quarterbacking power play one along with uh, Anthony Mantha, Dylan Larkin, Tyler Bertuzzi, and Bobby Ryan at the net front. Uh, and Anthony Mantha, I asked today about, I've seen him penalty killing a couple times and Jeff Blaschel confirmed that that is one of the things they're looking at in this camp is whether Mantha might make sense as a, as a regular penalty killer for them this year. You know, both of those situations, I think, you know, I, I actually think Anthony Mantha is a, is quite a good defensive player and that that's a role that makes a lot of sense for them. Um, but I know as soon as I tweeted it out, there was a huge response of people really worried about, you know, him potentially having to block shots on that penalty kill and you know is that an injury risk for a guy who has missed too much time over the years for the Red Wings uh, preferences um, not due to shot blocking but you know nonetheless um, and then DeKaiser who I don't think most people would think of as kind of your prototypical power play quarterback um, but he does have a couple things that they tend to like on on the Mantha unit which is number one being a left-hander and, and kind of a puck mover over someone who maybe would be more shot dependent when you have Mantha on a power play um you, you kind of want, not necessarily, you don't want to ever have too much of a focal point, but it's obvious that, that his shot is going to be a focal point of any power play unit he's on. So um, two, I think, kind of interesting personnel decisions. I, I think the Mantha penalty kill one is is the one that I, I think is is really a, a good idea. And DeKaiser might just be a case of, if it's not Philip Peronic up top there and he's not a left-handed player, I don't know that there is a better, certainly left-handed power play quarterback option on that team. Yeah, I mean... So starting with the, the the Kaiser decision, I think I saw a lot of people get really upset by, you know, how's Philip Peronic not on this first power play unit? I think there's two big things that stand out for me. Uh, the first is, I've said this a number of times on our show, handedness, while I don't think it matters in a lot of situations, the situation where I think it matters the most is on the power play. You have to have passing lanes. And so if you think about the power play that you just rattled off there, you know, the Dylan Larkin, the Anthony Mantha. So Dylan Larkin's a left-hand shot. Anthony Mantha's a left-hand shot. The Kaiser's a left-hand shot. You know, Bertuzzi's a left-hand shot playing in the slot. And then you've got Bobby Ryan as a right-hand shot, you know, playing down net front. That power play, based on handedness, sets up perfectly to run with Dylan Larkin as the quarterback of it on that left half boards. You have a clear passing lane to the right-hand shot, Bobby Ryan, where you can keep a stick on the goal line. And you've got the slot pass with Tyler Bertuzzi as a left-hand shot sitting right there. And then you've got Danny DeKaiser as a left-hand shot, again, sitting in the wheelhouse. And then Mantha on the far side, a left-hand shot sitting on the wheelhouse. You now have five passing lanes. This is something the Red Wings power play has not had in a really long time. And so... I think it makes a lot of sense to do this. And then, you know, the second piece of it is the misnomer of a power play quarterback. The power play doesn't run through Danny DeKaiser. It's going to run through Dylan Larkin. Right. Right. <clears throat> Danny DeKaiser is simply there to put pucks on net. And even that, the point shot is probably one of the most inefficient and ineffective shots. So he's not even really there to shoot it. He is there to be a facilitator between the puck going between Larkin and Mantha. And I think he's more than capable of doing that. Again, you know, I made this point on, you know, our show a couple episodes ago. We get so enamored with the net front guy uh, because Red Wings fans for years have watched Thomas Holmstrom. Red Wings fans are so enamored with the power play quarterback defenseman because of Nick Lidstrom and Brian Rafalski. That's not how it works, (laughs) right? You play now from the half boards. And so having Dylan Larkin be your Nicholas Backstrom, uh, you know, having him be the Evgeny Kuznetsov, having him be the Elise Pettersson, that's the kind of player you you need him to be, and that's your quarterback. It's not the guy at the top of the power play. So simply, I think he's a body there to open up a passing lane because if you have a right-handed Philip Peronic, that is a very tough pass to complete across a defenseman's stick or across a defender's stick. So I think it makes loads of sense to do this with the Kaiser, and I really don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah, we just watched Lucas Raymond run Sweden's power play from the lower half half wall throughout the World Juniors, and it was a similar deal. Now, you know, I'm sure Red Wings fans will be hoping that Danny DeKaiser isn't uh, throwing as many shots into seven guys in the middle of the ice as Victor Soderstrom ended up doing for Sweden. But, um, you know, that's something that you can pretty clearly uh, work on there. You know, I, I think you're dead on with it. I think that if Dylan Larkin you know, needs Danny DeKaiser or Bobby Ryan down low or Tyler Bertuzzi in the slot as outlets that ultimately then can help work the puck over to the other side and find free shots to Mantha. 
that's what will make this power play work. It's not, you know, DeKaiser making dangles at the line and, 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 you know, slick pivots. You're not looking, you're not going to ask him to be Quinn Hughes here. You're going to ask him to, you know, be an outlet and, and to get the puck moving the other way when one side gets too crowded. So, uh, I, I, I think I agree with you there. And, and as for power play too, I'm not sure that I have the clearest idea of what it's going to look like yet. There's been some looks of it. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. It was like Gagne, Zadina, Fabry, Chalowski, Hironik, I, I want to say. I could also see Nemestikov. Nemestikov has been on one of like kind of the secondary units they've thrown out there during like penalty kill stuff. Uh, sorry for power play stuff. Um, but that's also seen, you know, like Svechnikov and, and Smith and Rasmussen all cycling in Lindstrom at the, at the top. So it's kind of hard to tell what power play two is, who's, who's a placeholder for what in those situations. Philip Peronik is going to be on one of these power plays. His shot is too big a weapon. His, his, his intelligence is too big a weapon to not be. Um, I actually think it might be at the flank rather than at the top. But again, if it's running through the flank, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, we'll see how that shakes out. I don't feel like it's something I have extreme clarity on right now. Um, but yeah, I, I think as we progress, that'll continue to get clearer and clearer. It might be more interesting to see who is up top there, because if it's not Chalowski, I don't know who it is. It, it, is it John Merrill? Like, who is it up top if it's not Chalowski? I don't think you're going to ask Mark Stahl or Nemeth to do that. Maybe I mean, Stetcher, I, I, I have suppose. a wild idea here, Max. Why have a power play? T- no, why no have forward? a power play two at all? <laughs> Right. I mean, we said this last year, if you have five good players, play five good players for two minutes. And obviously, you know, there's there's the concern that they're fatigued. But again, I keep bringing the parallels back to Washington. Alex Ovechkin never leaves the ice for two minutes on the power play because he is that lethal of a weapon. It's not the same extent in Detroit. But if you really can only construct five, you know, one really good power play unit with five players, why waste half your power play? with a unit that is going to be entirely ineffective. Now, Detroit really just needs to buy their time because they're not far away from having a left-hand shot unit and a right-hand shot unit. Once you get Lucas Raymond, you know, for Red Wings fans, you can put Elmer Soderblom, the left-hand shot in front of the net, like he was doing at the World Juniors. You have Theodore Niederbach, who could potentially play the slot. And you put Antti Tuomisto up top on the right. And and now all of a sudden you have a right-hand setup and a left-hand setup that contrasts the setup you've got. But until you really have two useful setups, to me, it's wasting power play minutes to try and trot out an ineffective unit out there. Um, you may just need to find ways to get Philip Peronic into, you know, shooting spots. Um, and same thing with Philip Zadina, where maybe you just sub out a couple of guys uh, to get to get breathers in. But there's really no reason, in my opinion, to, to run a full on second unit that's just not designed to be effective. I have time for that argument. I definitely do. I uh, I think there's merit to it, and especially because the goal of the power play is to not spend two minutes on it. It's to end the power play well before those two minutes are up, um, even more so. So I'm definitely all for you know putting your your most attention and your most minutes uh, on power play one. I think they should get at least 75 seconds of every power play, if not more. Um, I will say I don't think I wouldn't anticipate the Red Wings just going into this and saying. Uh, you know, we've got one power play unit, uh, so I will continue to watch for what they are going to do there. But I do have time for that in theory. I think, you know, there's there's a lot. You know, it's it's not a while it is high intensity minutes and they're very high pressure. If you're doing a good job, a good job at it, which if it's your five best players, you would hope to be. You shouldn't be doing a whole lot of, uh, you know, exhaustive lateral skating. Right. It should be a lot of, you know, in zone little movement, but but not the kind that I would think would be too demanding for a two minute rotation, even up to two minutes. Yeah, I mean, arguably, the the thing that should be getting worked out the most is the shot. And so the guys may be so, have some sore shoulders and and risk from shooting the puck, but that's what you want. And so, you know, to me, I think when I look at the Red Wings power play last year, there's just far, far too inefficient because you just didn't have passing lanes set up. It led to them forcing passes and then chasing the puck a lot. It bring out a unit full of guys that really were not equipped to play on the power play. Uh, and, and, and the end result was an atrocious power play. And so bring back, you know, scenarios where Nick Lidstrom plays the entire power play. What's wrong with that, right? Thomas Holmstrom plays the entire power play. What's wrong with that? You know, Pavel Datsuk and Henrik Zetterberg used to play heavy minutes on the power play. Now, granted, they could be spelled by a younger Phil Pala and Yuri Hoodler, um, you know, in the, in the late two, uh, you know, two thousands there, but you know, I, 
outside of that, outside of really having two dynamic setups, to me, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So as much as I am enjoying getting back to the minutia of lines, power play units, all the stuff <laughs> that makes things feel like normal, I do want to take it back big picture for just a minute. Um, I put an article out this morning about what would classify or qualify, I should say, as a success for the Red Wings this season. They're coming off one of the worst seasons in modern NHL history. Um, as much as you can say, well, it's not a success unless it's like a you know a real success. They're going to make the playoffs or whatever. Um, I wanted to kind of go out of my way and say, what would we count as a success? If at the end of the year we want to look back and say, well, they did X, Y, Z, that probably means it was a successful year. And so um, – my, you know, submissions, I guess, for that were, you know, I, I had some numerical, um, you know, elaborations on the, these ideas, but learning how to stop the bleeding both in game and game to game in terms of streaks. So I, I, my, my offering was less than seven law lo- or seven or fewer losses by three or more goals. Uh, no more than three losing streaks of more than three games and none longer than, I don't know if I said four or five in the end, that was modeled off the Minnesota wild, which uh, basically did that last year. And, and the reason I use the Minnesota Wild is they're kind of the model of being a not elite team that does not get dragged into these losing streaks to, despite being um, talent mismatched most nights. I think that's a good standard. They've got a better blue line. There's no doubt more talented blue line, all that. But um, I actually think the Red Wings have a pretty similarly, if not more talented forward core. So I, I thought that was a good model to to base off of. And then I said they need to get out of the bottom 11 and at least two of uh, goals for per game, goals against per game, power play percentage, penalty kill percentage. Um, or if you want to swap in kind of some of those raw numbers with goals for and goals against, if you wanted to swap in Corsi for or expected goals for percentage. Um, and then if you just care about results, maybe you say they need to beat their, their projections or, or not just beat their projections finishing kind of the top third of, of their potential outcome. So Dom gave him, I think a, a one in three chance of finishing outside the bottom five or hitting 55 points. I think if they do either of those, if you say you're in the top third of your projected outcomes, I think you can say that's a relatively successful year. I wanted to see what you thought about those. I didn't ask you while I'm writing it, which, which I often will do to see uh, if I'm way off base, but this time I just kind of let it ride and, and now I'll hear it live for the first time right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly think everything you had listed was uh, reasonable to to ask of the team because I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is, well, you know, what should you call it a success? I think at the end of the day, it still has to be realistic and within the realm of possibilities, right? You know, this is not a successful season. I'm not going to come out and say you need to win the Stanley Cup, right? It's not in the realm of possibilities. Even making the playoffs, not really in the realm of possibilities. Um, you know, so if you're looking for, and I hate to say it, moral victories, there's a handful of sure. moral victories you should be looking for because this is a team, you know, like you said, Dom gave them a, a, basically a two-thirds chance of being a bottom five team, right? So expectation, this is probably a bottom five team. And so I'm not really going to base it on objective win-loss measures as this is a success or this is not a success. I think what you're looking for at the end of the day is this team to be competitive. Last year got way too far from being competitive. They lost games by 1.8 goals per game. That is unacceptable because Ottawa, a team that was right there with them, was still 20 plus points ahead of them and was losing games by 0.8 goals per game. You know, basically, you know, half of what Detroit was doing. They need to find a way to stay in hockey games. They can't have the avalanche of goals. You can't have the Toronto game where it's one nothing, two nothing, three nothing. And all it has to be a way in game to rally, to find a way to to counter, to make those five one games four two, to make the five you know five nothing games non existent. Uh, you have to cut down on those three plus goal losses. Uh, you know, I think in your article, Max, you said they lost 11 games by three plus goals and, you know, and extrapolating it down to this new season would maybe make that eight. I'd argue you got to be even better than eight. You know, I think if this is if you're looking at this team, project them to be somewhere closer to what they had in 2018, 2019. I think that would be a reasonable success is get back to at least where you were in 1819. Um, you're still a bottom five team. You were far more competitive uh, and, and games weren't necessarily a pushover. I think if that's where Detroit is at the end of the season, 
I, I, I would be happy because again, for me, I don't think it's realistic, uh, you know, for them to, to, to be much better than that. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I realize that when I say I think it was seven, I said I think I said fewer than eight. Um, so so you can have seven uh, by three or more. And I realize that for most teams in the league, that's kind of a defeatist attitude. They don't want to really be losing more than one or two uh, by that many. But I look at the Red Wings last year, and man, they played seventy-one games and they lost thirty by three goals or more. To me, if they cut it down to seven, that is cutting out three quarters of those blowout losses. Um, again, I, I realize that it's it, the bar is on the floor here, but it, it really is on the floor. And I, I think what you said is dead on. You have to set these things as realistic or else you're setting up to just for me to come back here. And I'd basically be, you know, sending myself an alley-oop to come in here and dunk on him at the end of the year. Right. Like I wanted to, to give kind of realistic markers in this. Yeah. And so that's why I think if you're looking for a realistic marker, I think the 2018, 2019 season is realistic. They were the fourth worst team in the NHL by points, but they were losing games by 0.6 goals per game on average. That is one third of what they were losing games by this past year. And so if you can get back to that, where you're at least competitive in hockey games, you're not getting blown out on the regular. I think that's going to be, you know, ultimately the best marker of success for the Red Wings, because uh, if you get back into scenarios where this team is getting blown out and, you know, they're, you're questioning how, like, what's their compete at that point, you know, that's a, I think that's going to be a big problem again, because, you know, we, you just can't have another season like you had this past year. Yeah. Any that I didn't talk about in there that you would like to add uh, to the, uh, I mean, I guess that goal differential one, it would, would be a good one. That's a good metric that I didn't really think to use. Are, are there any other that you think, uh, should have been included or that you'd like to kind of, uh, de facto add now? No, I mean, uh, you know, I think I'll just kind of stick on that goal per game. I think you were talking about seven, what, seven losses by three or fewer goals. Is that right? Yep. I yep. think that might be a little untenable just taking a look back. So, you know, I was yeah. looking at 2018, 2019 again as a measure, right? So even though Detroit was the fourth worst team in the NHL, they had the third fewest losses by three or more goals that season. Interesting. With 11. And so actually Tampa was at eight and Calgary was at six in 2018. That's fascinating. And so, you know, it's kind of fascinating because New Jersey and Ottawa had 26. In, in, in 2018, 2019. So if Detroit wow. can get back to that, where they are in the games, just losing them, but in the games, I think that is a that is a heck of a place to be. Um, seven might be tough based on that mark there, but, uh, you know, 11, 12, 
being in the top 10, somewhere in that range, I mean, that's not a bad spot to be. Uh, they were at least competitive there. I never looked at, at where they where they stacked up that year. I guess I just kind of was... Uh, they lost 29 was... games by one or two goals. Wow. 13 by one, 16 by two. It shocks me that Tampa could have lost eight by three or more because you figure that must be like half their losses or, or I guess a third of their losses. There was one half of their losses. Yeah. They lost 16 <laughs> games and they lost half of them by that much. I mean, if you look at the two loss games, Detroit led the league in that. And you look at the one, or sorry, the two goal uh, games, they were led the league. And then in the one goal games, they were had the second most. And so they were competitive in hockey games. They just didn't win many of them. That's what you want to get back to, that kind of level. So I think that would be my bench, benchmark for Detroit. That's fascinating. Well, for everybody listening, this is usually what happens when I uh, bounce an idea off Prashant over a text while I'm writing it. I'll say, you think this is reasonable? And he'll say, eh, that would make him the third best in the league at that. So maybe not. And I say, oh, good point. And I go change it. Little look behind the curtain there. Um, shifting gears, let's kind of close the book on, on the World Juniors. I know we, it seems like just a week ago we were doing our preview, but it was a short tournament. It, it's always a short tournament. It was an even shorter tournament for the vast majority of Red Wings. Um, all but Emil Vero with Finland are now out. He may be out of the tournament by the time this publishes, playing the United States tonight. Um, Sweden with an early exit. Finland bounced him on a last-minute goal. Final thoughts on, on Team Sweden and, and Lucas Raymond and Elmer Soderblom specifically. You know, I think that was a surprising game for me because, uh, you know, like I had said, I had Sweden pegged for the bronze medal uh, in this. So for them to go out, uh, you know, early before that was surprising. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think you have to be encouraged by what you saw, particularly from Elmer Soderblom. You know, obviously, We've talked about this on previous episodes. Height disparities and size disparities tend to really get magnified in in games like this. You know, Elmer Soderblom's a giant amongst teenagers, really. And and so that can certainly take its toll. I mean, you know, seeing the way he was able to use his reach um, to score those two fantastic goals, that's just stuff that, you know, as nice as it is, is going to be defended a lot better at the NHL level by a guy who's probably closer to his size, although not his size. Um, but it was still really encouraging to see not only did he score well, played well, was trusted to play a lot of minutes. Uh, when he was on the ice, Team Sweden maintained good possession. I think I saw from Instat Hockey that he was north of 60% in terms of when he was on the ice, Sweden controlled 60% of the five-on-five shots, uh, which is a great mark to see. It's more than just uh, you know him, him scoring the puck. And then Lucas Raymond, you know, you'll look at the totals, five points, five games, and maybe bulk a little bit. The guy was a monster with the puck. I think he was towards the top of the the World Juniors as of, you know, his exit in in shots on goal and really just attempting to shoot the puck. I think he just was a little snake bitten and not getting more of them to go. But uh, he's going to be a fantastic player. His motor is there. Defensively, it's there. Uh, I was really encouraged by him. I think Albert Johansson was maybe a guy I was hoping to see a little bit more out of. Didn't look as good in transition. Definitely needs to shore up. Uh, some more of his defensive deficiencies, but ultimately, you know, another guy who's going to play quite well. And then Niederbach didn't look out of place playing on the top line with Holton and Raymond. They just couldn't get it going in that one final game against Finland. So, you know, overall, I was really encouraged by particularly those four guys. Yeah, Niederbach, I, I thought did play better than than certainly what maybe you would. I mean, it's funny because he got two kind of cheap goals there a little bit. One of them he had to really work for at the front of the net, but I thought he still played better than kind of his line at the end of it, um, his scoring line that is. Um, Johansson, I agree, although I will say he, I think we projected him for four points in seven games. He ends with three and five, which is basically right on that pace. But yeah, a couple of, of, of not great in-zone defensive moments as the tournament were on there that um, certainly that's not what you want to see against junior age players. That's the kind of thing that you maybe expect to see against men in the SHL as he gets used to that. But um, those were not his finer moments, and those are things that I'm sure uh, the Red Wings will be working with him on. Um, now that he's, he's heading back to Ferlunda there, um, Raymond, I, I thought was the best player for, for Sweden in the tournament when, of the games that I watched, which was all of them. Um, you know, I, I was surprised that he didn't get named one of the top three on, on his team. I, I thought he was their best player. So, um, yeah, I, I thought just exactly what you said. He was a monster on the puck. He was a monster away from the puck. He was phenomenal running the power play. I, I didn't think their power play 
was as effective as it could have been. And I kind of alluded to it earlier. And I know people have talked about this online. Uh, you know, I, I didn't think Soderstrom had a great uh, tournament at the top of that unit, maybe firing shots into some shin pads a little too much. But, you know, it's just the way it goes. It, it, it happens, the short tournament, and um, this is what happens in short tournaments. So I will say on Soderblom, I have seen, you know, again, I think he had a good tournament. There's no doubt. And he had a better tournament than I was maybe expecting from him. Um, and I was expecting a, a, a good tournament from him, as, as people would have heard in our in our preview episode. I was expecting big things from him, um, including production-wise. And he didn't hit the production markers, but I think he did hit a couple posts against Austria that would have put him on pace to do that. So um, I thought he was really good. I will say, I started to see people kind of say, you know, I, I got a comment yesterday asking, you know, is, is Rasmussen kind of like Soderblom? I still think Rasmussen's a better prospect than Soderblom, and I would caution people to not get out of hand with this here. Like, what Soderblom showed in this tournament is that he's a legitimate NHL prospect, but that's to take in a bottom six role. And I, I think, you know, Rasmussen, you know, I don't think he has the hands of Soderblom because Soderblom looks pretty smooth with his hands, but both of these guys are going to need to work on their skating. And I think Rasmussen, in terms of kind of, of, kind of quote-unquote meanness and in terms of kind of I've seen him make some really nice passing plays I think he's a really smart player um, I would still put Rasmussen ahead of him so whatever that means for people in terms of how they're going to contextualize Soder, Soder, Soderblom um, I think it's just important to, to not get too far ahead of your skis here I still think you know if he makes the NHL and I do still think it's an if because there are questions to be answered you're still looking at a, a, at a bottom six I think guy um, and so just don't don't let your imagination run too wild. Although even though he is a, a six, eight guy with really nice hands who scored a couple of pretty goals, be careful, but he had a good tournament. I think he was named Sweden's player of the game a couple different times. Um, I don't think you could have asked for much more out of him there, but he's still raw. He's still a project. Uh, and it's going to need, it's going to need patience at minimum. And it's probably going to need a little bit of, uh, of pumping the brakes on, on, uh, some of the talk of the ceiling there. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're comparing Rasmussen to, to Soderblom, I think you have to remember this is Soderblom's age 19 season, right? He is yeah. still waffling back and forth between J20 in Sweden and the SHL and has yet to find the score sheet in the SHL. Rasmussen's age 19 season, he's playing 62 games for Detroit. Now, granted, that was and somewhat scoring. out of... Right. And, and granted, that was somewhat out of necessity because he was too good for Tri-City to, to go back. And, you know, with the CHL-NHL agreement, that was really his only option. Uh, to keep him out of there. I mean, he was more than a point-per-game player with Tri-City the year before. Uh, but that being said, you know, the guy came in and scored 18 points in 62 games at the NHL as an age 19 player. Uh, so there is a huge discrepancy for me between the two yeah. of them. Rasmussen still by far has the higher ceiling of the two. I think it's fair to label Rasmussen as, you know, somewhat of a disappointment relative to his draft position of sixth overall, but or ninth overall. Um, yeah. But... You know, you you don't. He's not anywhere in the same bucket as Elmer Soderblom right now. We still don't know if Soderblom's going to even make it to the NHL. But you have to be encouraged with his progress. Yeah, and I think ultimately, you you like we talked about on the previous episode, you could see him play similar roles, and you could see him land with similar um, kind of impacts. I guess, although I still think Rasmussen's got a better shot to be kind of an impact, uh, like you know, centerman whatnot um, in the NHL. But you could see it. You could see them come to have similar impacts. It's just right now you wouldn't place that bet. You would you would put your chips on Michael Rasmussen if you were gonna um, choose one of those. So I just wanted to make sure we we talked about that and we didn't let the hype train run too wild. Um, but he had a good tournament, and and as did I think most of the Red Wings Swedes. You know, Niederbach again. This is an eighteen year old in this tournament. So is Raymond. Both of those two guys could be back for them next year. That could be the the top line for Sweden next year if Holtz isn't in the NHL. It could be uh, Niederbach, Raymond, Holtz, and and they could be getting a, a nice little second wave there. And you could have Simon Edvinson on the back end, William Wallander. Um, so I, you know, I don't think the as 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 much as watching all the Sweden players be heartbroken on NHL Network after that was uh, was a kind of a you know heart wrenching image. A lot of those guys are going to be back and have another shot at this too. Yeah. That next year's Swedish team is going to be uh, incredible, particularly if, uh, you know, Wallstead is the goaltender and the starting goaltender yep. for all the games. I mean, you know, he he's an absolute monster. You think about, 
you know, Fabian Lysel, you think about some of these other guys right now who were tearing it up, you know, Olison had, I think, had a good tournament. So, you know, you, you look at some of these 2021 guys and, and, and you realize Sweden is, is loaded with some talent and, and I think they're going to be a, a very difficult team uh, to play next season. All right, we've got to get uh, our producer Danielle out of here in the next three or four minutes because she's got a, a Blue Jackets show to record. So I will just ask you ahead of this scrimmage that's going to kick off tomorrow morning, um, what would you be most interested in seeing? What, what will your big questions be uh, going into that? Yeah, I think the thing I'm most interested in seeing is how do any of the line combinations that are not Larkin, Mantha, Bertuzzi perform? You know, what's the yep. chemistry like in the offensive zone? How do they transition? You know, who takes over the defensive responsibilities uh, on that second line? You know, is is Fabry really going to play the defensive responsibilities there? Or, you know, is that going to kind of get rotated? Is it going to be a first man back kind of thing? You know, how does that how is that going to get passed along and how does that really impact? But, you know, I think that's the biggest thing I want to see is what do the lines look like on offense that are not Larkin, Mantha, Bertuzzi? And can they be successful enough against one another uh, to really provide the Red Wings with some some scoring support. Yep, I think that's a that's a very fair uh, n- yeah, kind of number one objective to look at there. I'm I'm also going to be very curious to see how uh, Svechnikov performs, kind of with the lights on, so to speak. Now in a scrimmage, um, he's had a couple of nice little eye catching plays in in the small area stuff, but you know I, I don't think he's done anything that that's kind of blown you away either. And I would say this is kind of a first chance for him if he wants to state his case and try to get on. Uh, under the roster, he and Matias Brome both. Um, I'm very interested to see what they're able to do uh, in, in the scrimmage conditions. Um, so those are those are some guys that I'll be watching very closely tomorrow. I agree. Those are some uh, big key battles for the last few roster spots there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we'll hopefully have another episode for you guys soon. Um, in the meantime, take care. Enjoy uh, enjoy your new new year, 2021, and uh, make sure you're keeping up with all of our stuff at theathletic.com. Um, should be a, a healthy stream of articles coming all, all well, really all season now. So looking forward to that, and I uh, hope you'll stick with us. Take care.